0: That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Now please help me give a warm welcome to Ezra Klein and Jamel Bowie.
1: Hello, welcome to The Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This one was such a pleasure. It was the first night of book tour at Six and I Synagogue in D.C. It was sold out. So many of you were there. It was awesome to meet you. I was in conversation with Jamel Bowie, who is great. He's a friend of mine. He is a New York Times columnist. Just everything about this was a pleasure. Uh, A quick update on tour. We've got a bunch of sold out events, but we still do have tickets in Boston on the 31st, in LA on the 4th, in San Francisco. I think some of those are not sold out totally, so go check that out. Seattle on the 10th, Portland, Oregon on the 12th. Uh, Then I'm going to be in Austin, Texas during South by Southwest, March 13th to 15th, doing some stuff in the official program there, some stuff not. So you can come even if you do not have a ticket. Vox Media is going to have a really cool installation. Um, Then we're going to Chicago and Greenville and Nashville in April. All the information about the tour is at whywe'repolarized.com. Again, whywe'repolarized.com. But here live at Six and I is me and Jamel Bowie. What are y'all doing here? You know you could know just download these free as a podcast, right? Um, before we start, I actually want to say thank you. This is the first event of the book tour in a city that means a lot to me, in a venue that means a lot to me, and it means a lot to me that you're all here working on a book is a solitary, strange experience, and to see that there are real human beings out there who care is a wonderful thing. So Thank you all for being here.
2: So, Ezra, I saw your book, uh, got a copy in the mail, and I'm reading the title, Why We're Polarized. And I, I've said this to you, and I'll say it to everyone. When I see books with these kinds of titles, my immediate thought is, oh, come on, we're not that polarized. It's not that big of a deal. Things have been worse in American history, the 1850s, 1930s, even the 1960s. So, If we are uniquely polarized in the present moment, what makes it unique? And you acknowledge in the book itself that things have been worse, but now is different in a way that maybe the trend is worse than it looks. So something I
1: didn't think I quite realized I was doing when we titled the book, which I really want to note that I managed to not have a subtitle, and everybody is welcome, trying to push against trends in publishing but when you use the word polarized, you're completely right. You get an immediate intuition on the audience side that what you're doing is lamenting how bitter everything is today. And as you say, things have been much, much, much worse, um, the 1830s and 1930s. The thing that is different today than mid 20th century American politics, I think it's important to, to say that we baseline and we being the pundit class we baseline American politics to the 20th century, in part because a lot of people who run political publications, like their political coming of age was in the 20th century. I remember when I got to DC, it was like all people who had gotten DC in the 1980s. And so just constantly like, why can't we have Reagan and Tip O'Neill getting a drink and fixing Social Security? Like that was the iconic way the American political system was supposed to work. And what I came to have to explore and to think about is, that seemed wrong, but why? Like, in what way was that wrong? In what way was that intuition incorrect? And the way it's wrong is that mid-20th century American politics was very unusual in that it wasn't polarized, in that politics is usually polarized in most countries, in most places, at most times. But the second thing that I think is very unintuitive here is that polarization is not necessarily a bad thing. And it is not necessarily a synonym for disagreement or bitterness or extremism. I always think the fascinating thing about the 20th century is that it was a much more, it was a time of much more foundational political fracture than what we're in right now. You had the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, the anti-war movement, the indigenous rights movement. You had National Guardsmen killing protesters at Kent State. You had urban riots. You had Richard Nixon and Watergate. You had political assassination after political assassination after political assassination. You had all of this tumult in the country itself. Um, and by the way, a much larger range of ideological opinion, not democratic socialism like Norway right, to republicanism as we see it today, but Communism, like actual, like Stalin is right all <laughs> in, the way to Milton Friedman. In,
2: in the recent memory of some of the people who had came of age in politics, Stalin is for a meaningful faction in American exactly. politics. Like, it's a real thing you
1: had to deal with. And so what is different now is not faction or fracture. It is the way the different fractures align on top of each other, the way we've become polarized by party and that party, that political identity has linked to a lot of other identities and a lot of other fractures in American politics. I always think that a good example of this is actually the Civil Rights Act itself. That is an intensely divisive piece of legislation. It comes after a very long, hard-fought political battle, and it's completely bipartisan. A higher proportion of Republicans in Congress vote for it than Democrats. And then Medicare, which comes right around the same time, gets, I think it's 13 or 17 Republican votes in the Senate, to imagine major pieces of legislation representing some of the fundamental political conflicts of the era, passing with very little party polarization, it's almost unthinkable today. And so that I think is the thing I'm trying to illuminate here, that American politics, the way the parties function and their relationship to our fractures is actually actively different than it was at other times. And we have to build our understanding of how politics works on that, not on a
2: overly nostalgic view of the past. So in the book, you, you begin talking about how American politics got polarized in the way it is now. And the civil rights story is very much part of that story, that the Civil Rights Act uh, essentially realigns the liberal and conservative factions in both parties, basically to to their respective parties. Liberal Republicans become Democrats, conservative Democrats become Republicans. And the political system in a way that it's never been before has a straight line of ideological polarization. You describe this as not necessarily being a bad thing, and I want to hear you talk about why it wasn't a bad thing, even if the consequences have not necessarily been great for the political system.
1: I think implicitly people often believe the alternative to polarization is agreement, compromise, civility, comedy. when the alternative to polarization is often suppression. Oftentimes, in political systems in particular, the reason you are not quote-unquote polarized is it the disagreements that you would polarize over are somehow or another being suppressed. In the American political system, the way they were suppressed was by a two-party system collapsing into a four-party system in a way that made it incoherent in its ability to surface certain kinds of disagreement, in particular disagreement over race. And so what you had, as you mentioned, is a democratic party that had what we think of as a democratic party, a party that is left on economics, concerned with redistribution and poverty, um, thinks of structural barriers to opportunity, and then a Dixiecrat party that was quite conservative, or at least a lot of its members were conservative on those issues, although there was a wide range of economic opinion among the Dixiecrats, but was fundamentally conducting the South's foreign policy with the rest of the nation. It was imposing one party rule at home, and then it was ensuring that Basically, the national political system let it enforce white supremacy in the South. And then the Republican Party, you had these liberal Republicans, these conservative Republicans. And this was considered at the time a problem. I mean, there's a great book, and I quote a lot of it here from uh, my friend who used to be a colleague at the American Prospect, Sam Rosenfeld, called The Polarizers. And what he really shows in that is that there were people looking at this and saying, there is something wrong with this system. And the American Political Science Association releases this report in 1950, which has become famous, infamous. But what they say is that The problem in American politics is the parties aren't, quote unquote, responsible. And what they mean by responsible is that they are not putting forward separate, clear, defined agendas so that people can make a choice between them. Instead, you have a Democrat in South Carolina voting for Strom Thurmond, a very conservative senator, and a Democrat in Minnesota voting for Hubert Humphrey. And so you have this period where American politics, in many ways, functions well on the things that it functions upon. But the cost of that is this abhorrent compromise to allow racial white supremacy to exist in the South. The Civil Rights Act doesn't end that all at once. And I think this is actually a part of this that people underestimate. The Civil Rights Act does lead to Barry Goldwater winning some parts of the old Confederacy for the first time ever. But it takes a long time for the South to become solidly democratic, well into roughly the 90s, I would put it. I'm sorry, to become solidly Republican, well into the 90s. And that's because it takes a long time for those old identities to fall away. the south begins voting more often for republicans nationally but in terms of party affiliation it's still quite democratic the republican party invaded and occupied the south and that was again in the memory of some of the people there so it's a generational replacement that leads to that heading over i don't think you can look at those compromises in mid-20th century american politics and say they were moral or just Um, there's a really nice line from our our mutual friend adam serwer where he calls i'm going to get a little bit wrong from memory but he talks about it being a false piece right? The false piece of suppressing issues like this. One of the arguments I make throughout the book is that the problem is not polarization per se. Polarization is often another word we have for disagreements we have to have coming to the surface. The problem in our system is that it is built so that in conditions of polarization, there is not a way to resolve disagreement. The system gridlocks into forms of paralysis or just unending conflict. But that is a political system design problem, not a polarization problem per se.
2: So let's... We can go in two different directions here. but I want to go in the polarization problem direction here first. So in the book, you talk about the polarization of the party system, but you also talk about, and as you mentioned here, the ways in which different people's many different identities are becoming polarized along political lines. And you sort of walk through basically theories of individual polarization, theories of group polarization. Uh, could you sketch out in a little more detail what that process of polarization looks like? What exactly is happening such that in the present, you can basically guess who someone is going to vote for off of their proximity to a, what is it, a Whole Foods or a Cracker Barrel? Both wonderful establishments, if I may say so myself. (laughs) All
1: right, we're going to do it. We're going to build a theory of group identity polarization from the (laughs) ground up. I'm going to start in this where I start with it in the book, uh, which is with a guy named Henry Tajfel. Henry Tajfel is born a Polish Jew. He moves to France in the 30s uh, because he can't go to university in Poland because he's Jewish. Um, we're here, by the way, on National Holocaust Remembrance Day, so this is gonna be a resident story. He moves to France. He enlists during World War II. He's captured by Germany, he becomes a prisoner of war. He survives because he's understood as a French prisoner of war and not as a Polish Jew. When he comes back, his whole family is dead. Um, His whole family's been killed in the Holocaust. And he begins thinking, obsessing about the idea that in this context, the only thing that mattered was an identity, right? Not him, not who he was, nothing was different about him. He had a group identity, which identity he was understood as, decided whether or not he lived or died and decided that so many people he loved had died. So he becomes fixated on this question of, group identity, what is it, how does it work? And he starts running what become a very famous series of experiments called the minimal group paradigm experiments. And the idea basically is he's going to call subjects into a lab, subject them to conditions that begin to create group coherence and see at what point group identity and very importantly outgroup discrimination begin to take hold. So he has all these kids, they're all from the same school, come in, 64 of them and he has him look at these sheets of paper or screens that have dots on them. It's like, how many dots do you think there are here? And then he separates them into two groups, uh, the overestimators and the underestimators. In truth, this is totally random. They did not, ca- not care how many dots they had, but overestimators and underestimators. And then the study authors say, you know what, while we have all you kids here, We need to do one other, we want to do one other experiment. This is not related to the first one, but if you don't mind just hanging out for a minute, we're gonna sort you into these groups based on how many dots you estimated. Uh, Just give us a sec here. They then put them into this new experiment that is about allocating money to other kids. And these are kids who know each other, kids who have a ton in common, they're all from the same school, they've just been sorted into these completely random groups. And immediately they begin favoring their co over dot estimators or under dot estimators. And this was actually not an expected outcome. Um, This was the first test meant to be below the level at which group identity and behavior took hold. He found first that he could not create a test so subtle that group identity would not take hold. A meaningless characteristic that was itself untrue with a bunch of people who were already in a group together and you still got this. So he did it again with paintings. Do you prefer the paintings of Klee or Kandinsky? Again, false, which paintings you actually prefer It was totally random. Same thing happens. And in this one, he shows group discrimination becomes very powerful. People will choose to give everybody less money, their own group less money, if it means their group gets more money compared to the other group. It's the winning that's important. Point of that, and the reason I bring it up, is it we are very sensitive to group identities. It's very easy to create them. These studies have been replicated endless numbers of times with all kinds of subjects. Just if you don't believe what I'm saying, just like think for two seconds about sports, right? Like it's all based on this. These are contests. I'm sorry, everybody, with no stakes somewhere. Jane Costin is crying. Um, but people get like people actually riot and burn cities in their aftermath. Um, identity is very powerful and it doesn't require all that much to activate it. So, the thing that becomes very important here is that recognizing we all have a lot of different identities. I am Jewish, I'm Californian, I'm a father, I'm a journalist, I'm a liberal, I prefer Mac products, I, you know, so on and so forth. I have a dog, not a cat. Um, some of these identities are weak in me, some of them can become very strong. What becomes really important in politics is the way your identities link to each other. So for a lot of American history, the Republican and the Democratic parties are internally, in terms of the groups that connect to them, because they are so internally mixed, they're very diverse. Um, They have similar religious compositions, not that dissimilar racial compositions, and not even that dissimilar ideological compositions. But once this sorting mechanism begins to happen in the 20th century post-Civil Rights Act, and as Jamel said, the Democratic Party becomes the liberal party, and the Republican Party becomes the conservative party, it sets off a period of not just ideological sorting, But demographic sorting. So the Democratic Party becomes much more diverse. Now the Democratic Party is about half non white. The Republican Party is very centrally white. It's about 90% white. Um, The Republican Party becomes an overwhelmingly, or remains, I should say, an overwhelmingly Christian party. The Democratic Party, the single largest religious group, is people with no religious affiliation at all. And beyond that, it's a coalition of a lot of different religious groups and communities. Um, Even within ideology, the Democratic Party is about half self-identified liberals, Republican Party, about 75% self-identified conservatives. So what begins to happen is that the parties sort by not just ideology, but race religiosity, geography, psychological qualities like openness to experience and conscientiousness, fixed versus fluid kind of things, um, where you live, and then all these downstream cultural things, Cracker Barrel, do you watch Duck Dynasty or do you watch Mad Men? And so they become these mega identities where, one, we know a lot about you in general by who you vote for, but two, There are a lot of things it can trigger and strengthen and reinforce your political identity. And three, as the other party becomes much more ideologically different from you and more demographically different as you feel that they are not your group, those underlying group identity dynamics take very powerful hold. I'll just say one more thing on this, which is that there's a fascinating study that showed to just get a sense of how powerful this is. In countries with the most Stacked identities, which is like all the identities aligning, versus countries with the most cross cutting identities, the identities pulling you in different directions. The countries with the most cross cutting identities are 12 times less likely to have civil war. So these are big numbers that drive a lot of political behavior. It takes some work to feel the stakes of policy and politics, like to think about should China be a currency manipulator? What should our immigration policy be, et cetera? But the group dynamics take almost no work. Once you have a sense that the other party doesn't like you, it's not going to be good for people like you, it's a very, very powerful thing. And the more of that sense you have, the more aggressively you will
2: react um, in favor of your side and against them. So, so far in this conversation, we've been talking about The path to polarization is essentially moving of its own accord. Some events happen in the 60s. The parties begin the realignment. Uh, There are are other events that are bearing on the party's realignment. But then kind of things take their own path. But I know you don't necessarily think that, that in all of this, there are political actors making choices about how to best attain an advantage, about how to best Uh, win an election, about how to do whatever, and their choices end up feeding into polarization, putting us on a certain path that then becomes more dependent as we go Mm -hmm. on it. But we have to be kind of moved there in addition to these ground-level material changes.
1: I don't want to say that individual behavior has no effect at all on politics. That would clearly be untrue. But I do want to say... (laughs) that individual behavior has a lot less range of choice in politics than we think it does, that particularly American political journalism narrativizes the story of American politics through individuals in a way that I think is unhelpful for understanding what has really happened here. So there is definitely a lot that individuals choose to Donald Trump, if Donald Trump had not run in 2016, American political history would just be different. If Barack Obama had not run in 08, American political history would just be different. But I don't think the underlying trends would be all that different over the long
2: run. Um, Is that like a matter of, you know, Newt Gingrich becomes Speaker of the House, he ends up being a really powerful force in driving the Congressional Republican Party to the right but if Newt Gingrich never, if that never happened, if Newt Gingrich is somehow never born, never escapes Georgia for some reason, um, stays a math teacher or a history teacher. He married his math teacher, I think, is that right? Something like that. He's, he's married a lot of people. married a lot of people. Uh, would someone like that have appeared eventually? Right, yes. like,
1: like the- this is This is actually a disagreement I have with the polarization literature. It is literally over Newt Gingrichized. <laughs> like there is just too much Newt Gingrich in the polarization literature, in my view. And the reason I think there's too much is not that Newt Gingrich was not himself in truly a, a polarization innovator. He came up with stuff and like every polarization book includes a long story about how Newt Gingrich began having him and his lieutenants give speeches when the C-SPAN cameras were on where it'd be like, and if you Democrats aren't cowards, you'll come up and answer me. But like nobody was there because it was two in the morning, but you couldn't see it. Like it's like every time. And I'm not saying it's not a good story. Um, it is a good story and it's true. Uh, but the question is not, what did Newt Gingrich come up with? The question is, why did Newt Gingrich get made speaker? Why was the Republican Party fertile soil for Newt Gingrich in the first place? And now that we don't have Newt Gingrich, we have Mitch McConnell, who's a very different personality than Newt Gingrich—less bombastic, um, you know, less fireworky, less erratic—but uh, has also been an. Innovator in interesting ways, and I also don't. I also think it gets overly personalized to him that he's doing in some ways what any Republican leader of the Senate would do. He didn't invent new powers to stop Merrick Garland. He just didn't allow a vote on somebody Republicans didn't want to vote on. And if all of them had broken with Mitch McConnell, he would not have had the power to stop it. So in general, I think you have to look for. I, one of I think this metaphor actually got taken out of the book, but I, I, at one point I had a draft where I described it as. American politics focuses on the flowers and not the soil. We're always trying to tell the story of like this meeting and this person and like the other guy walked out and, or there's a great book that I would highly recommend by Jeffrey uh And I'm blanking on it. Is it rule, rule and Ruin? Rule and Ruin. Thank yeah. you. Which is a wonderful history of moderate Republicanism as an actual distinct thing. But I think if you take a step back from this book, uh, what you notice in it is that the way he describes what is going on is the moderate Republicans are always like this close to figuring it out and then collapse because they make the wrong strategic move or Nelson Rockefeller is an egomaniac or just like something doesn't go quite right. Meanwhile, I think correctly read, the conservatives are a bunch of bumbling fools in it. They're like getting blown out in elections like the Goldwater election. They also have totally crazy people who make bad strategic decisions. They have less money than the moderates, but they win. And I think that in a way, like the Cabas service and like almost all the polarization histories do a little bit too little to understand why the players who win won, because it's not like they didn't make tons of mistakes. Newt Gingrich is... He's sometimes a brilliant political operator, but sometimes a complete fool. Um, the fact of the matter is the other people didn't win. It wasn't, it wasn't good soil for them. And similarly, on the Democratic side, something very different has been going on. The Democrats have the same House leadership they had in '06. That's actually weird. Yeah. Like it's a weird thing about the Democrats, but it also speaks to dynamics there. So I think the reason I'm skeptical is not that I don't think individuals could make different decisions that would end up mattering. It's that the reason the individuals whose decisions mattered ended up in the positions they did was because they were, as Michael Tesler, a political scientist, says in the book about Donald Trump, hunting where the ducks were. Donald Trump, there's a lot that is unique and distinct about him, but in a very straightforward way, the reason he won the primary is he gave voice to what the Republican base really wanted to have give a voice given to, which was a white backlash nativism. And like that was where the center of the party had been, and he understood that in a way the others didn't. So you can really look at Trump, but you also, I think, have to look at why was the party receptive to Trump when it, might, when it probably wouldn't have been at another time and when the Democratic Party definitely wouldn't have been.
2: I mean, this gets to... Kind of part of the story in the latter part of the book, which is that race isn't just didn't just affect the the origin point of contemporary polarization, but it very much is driving present day polarization. In part, because among the stack of identities that's lined up, the partisan identity is also racial identity. As you mentioned earlier, if you're if you're white, if you're an evangelical Christian, if you live in the South, if you live in the Midwest, you're probably a Republican. And not just that, but the other side appears to be growing, to be uh, seemingly political dominant, as evidenced by the previous president, Um, seems to be uh, on the advance in a way that doesn't just mean your side will lose a couple of times, but may, in your mind, fundamentally threaten the world in which you live.
1: Yeah. Yes. (laughs) I think this is actually really important in understanding why the Republican Party has reacted to polarization the way it has. Because look, we could be a polarized country with a very different kind of Republican Party, right? It could be a Republican Party that uh, nominated Marco Rubio, for instance, right, who is very conservative. And we would still be talking about polarization just as we were in 2015 with Barack Obama. But it would not be a party that was that had adopted this Flight 93 view of politics that you heard in the run-up to Donald Trump. And you still hear from people like Attorney General William Barr in the Trump administration saying, for instance, there is an organized assault to destroy Christianity in this country. And so one of the things going on is that we are in a period of very rapid demographic change. We're on track to become a majority minority country racially by 2043, something like that. We are on track for a similar thing to happen with religion. Um, Again, in the 2040s, if demographer projections are correct, you'll see the religiously unaffiliated past Protestants as the single largest religious group, which is a quite remarkable thing in American history. We are on track to be at a record percentage of foreign-born Americans in a couple, I think it's a couple of decades, but we've gone, this has been a pretty rapid rise from 4% in the 1970s to about 14 and a half percentage points now. So the country really is changing. And not only that, it's changing in a way that creates interesting disequilibrium in terms of power. Something I, I talk about in the book, and I got this idea from Robert Jones, who's the head of the Public Religion Research Institute and a very smart guy on these issues, but he makes a point that politics is like a time machine. And in politics, the power of the white Christian demographic, which he studies very closely, it's about 10 years, it's like 10 years behind where they are demographically. So older, whiter, more rural Christian people just turn out at higher rates. And so if you look at where Like white evangelicals are as a percentage of the electorate. It's where they were as a percentage of the country 10 years ago. So they're bigger than they appear. Meanwhile, culture has this funny way of being almost 10 years ahead demographically. It comes out of urban centers. It is very focused on getting young people to buy products, to watch television shows. I've done a lot of cable news, and it's like an interesting fact about cable news. They don't care about ratings. They care about the demo. They only care about people between, I think it's 24 and 45 watching it, or maybe it's 18 and 45. But at any rate, a lot of the people watching it are older than 45 and like, it's not an issue. They like culture, television, product placement, It's all, it's moving very fast. And so there's this feeling on the right that they're losing the one thing that really matters, which is the soul of the country, the way the country is changing. If you actually poll people, this is true for people on the left and the right, they think we're a much more diverse country than we are. They think that the tipping point of becoming a majority-minority country racially has already happened. So people experience these demographic changes as happening even faster than they're actually happening. So that creates a kind of panic on the right, even though they hold a lot of political power. Meanwhile, the amount of political power the right holds creates a lot of panic on the left. And so in addition to everything else going on, you have these two coalitions that both feel threatened. One feels in some ways like it should be ascendant, but isn't quite. And a lot of people in it have very good reason to feel truly threatened. And the other feels like it. Has been dominant and it represents the true America, but it is being pushed out and made into bigots and called deplorables. And like they need to desperately fight to keep the country they grew up in. And it creates a very high sense of political stakes and that kind of polarized political conflict can become very anything goes because the stakes just feel like you can't let the other side win because if they do, that might be the end of you, right? If you look at a lot of Trumpist rhetoric, it is this idea that if the left wins, like, well, that might just be the end of a Christian America. I I think he
2: literally said that in 2016. He said that many times.
1: Flight 93 guys say it. William Barr has said things like that. I mean, Rod Dreher wrote a book about Retreating to monastic communities to wait out the storm, like it's a, it's a very apocalyptic, like eschatological sense of politics.
2: i say an interesting thing here is that here we're running into a bit of a tension between structure and individuals, because you can imagine, as you suggested, it's not just polarization will look different if Marco Rubio were president, but Marco Rubio may not have taken those same kind of strategies, and then not doing so, um, perhaps moved us away from this particular kind of polarization that then compounds within the political system. I think that's right. I mean, I think it's a very tough question to ask how much running
1: room was there. So I'll, I'll give an example of this. If you look at the way Fox News hosts talk about the diversification of America, it is with an extraordinary sense of threat. And it didn't just start with Tucker Carlson getting a primetime slot. If you go back to 2012, eve of the election. Uh, Bill O'Reilly gets on and he says, we are seeing the end of the white majority. This is not the country we grew up in. If you listen to Rush Limbaugh, he says, how do you get ahead in an Obama White House? It is by hating white people.
2: I remember watching Glenn Beck with that uh, that chalkboard talking about how Obama was an anti-white president and this would be an an anti-white America now. Yeah. I mean, Joe Biden, like
1: sitting there as vice president, they're like, it's an anti-white country. (laughs) Um, So you ask... Like one, why? Like what is happening there? And why isn't there other people on the shows? Um, Megan Kelly, who I think is now understood as a sort of more moderate force who gets pushed out of Fox News, is like creating all this fear about the new Black Panthers. And so there is on the one hand a diversity of opinion within Fox, right? There are people who are more and less fear-mongering about this. And on the other hand, it is clear who wins. Yeah. Right? And that is partially ratings driven. It isn't clear that. Murdoch cares very much about creating this kind of panic, but it is very clear that Roger Ailes and them want to win. I mean, at some point, Fox ends up for a moment in conflict with Donald Trump early in the Republican primary. I always think this is actually a very pivotal moment in American politics. That Fox has been inflating the Trump bubble. It's good TV. He calls into Fox and friends. It's all in good fun. Then, like, he's like, this guy's actually running for president. And so, the first, I believe it's the first primary of the 2016 Republican cycle is on Fox News. And it's like, they're kind of journalist cohort. It's Chris Wallace and Bret Baier and Megyn Kelly. And they actually really confront Trump. They read him the terrible things he said about women. They talk about the way he used to be a Democrat. Like Fox News goes into that primary in an aggressive way, and they decide, it seemed to me, that they were going to pop the Trump bubble. And Trump goes to war with them, and he wins he attacks them. He begins like, attacking them as liberals. And a couple days later, there's like, these stories that Roger Ailes has gone to him and bent the knee and promised fair, fair coverage. And things like this continue to happen. There are parts of the Republican Party that decide they're going to stop Trump and then just fail and eventually bend the knee. And so there is the question of individual actors, but there's also the question of what did the individual actors who tried to make another choice, what happened to them? Mark Sanford, Rock ribbed Republican. In 2012, he was considered to be a very likely Republican challenger to Barack Obama before some of the hiking the Appalachian Trail stuff happened. But, like, serious, intense Republican guy, you know, like all the way out there. Justin Amash, understood as one of the most libertarian, conservative members of the party. Rand Paul, like all these folks. Um, When people like Amash and Sanford and Jeff Flake, to some degree, Bob Corker, when they challenge Trump, which they do, a couple of them did, they get run out of the party. They realize they're they're not going to have a future here. So it isn't that there aren't moves available to people. But if you look at the people who tried to take one of those moves, Megyn Kelly is out of Fox a year after she comes into conflict with Trump. Um, Sanford and Corker and Flake are out of Office after they decide they're going to become anti Trump. Now, some of them decided to retire, but they retired because they thought they were going to lose. So, again, there is movement here and things you could do, but there were individuals who tried, and there's a reason they didn't win. Like, 16 other Republicans ran in 2016 who weren't Donald Trump and said he was a cancer on conservatism. And, like, that guy became his energy secretary. And (laughs) the guy he said, like, what a speck of dirt is more like should be president instead of him. I think that was Rand Paul became really positive about him in the Senate. Lindsey Graham said horrible things about Donald Trump and is slavish towards him. So people did try to make other decisions and they lost. And I think it's important to analyze the ecosystem that led to them
3: losing. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. shopify.com/box
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
2: Earlier, there are two directions you can go in. I'm going to go into the other direction, which is just the structure of American government. Because part of, and you make this case in the book, if we had a different political system the polarization we're experiencing, the stack polarization doesn't necessarily lead to gridlock. It may not still be good, but it doesn't produce the kind of institutional dysfunction we're experiencing right now.
1: Right. I mean, think about this in the UK. Boris Johnson, they just had an election. Boris Johnson just won. And when he won, what nobody was saying is like, sure, he won, but he's definitely not going to be able to do anything. Right. I mean, that was a very divisive election. Like, sure, he won, but he could get anything through the parliament. <laughs> Something distinct and idiosyncratic about our system is winning elections does not mean you can govern. It doesn't mean you can do anything close to governing. You might, it is very plausible that, and it's going to be a strange outcome, that in 2021, Bernie Sanders will be president and Mitch McConnell will be Senate Majority Leader. And Medicare for all is not passing. Like if that is the collection of political power, nor if Joe Biden is president and Mitch McConnell is Majority Leader, is a public option passing. So you have this idiosyncratic American political system, which requires very high levels of compromise to function. Um, In those conditions, polarized parties make the system ungovernable functionally, and not just ungovernable in the sense of paralysis, but also ungovernable in the sense of potential crises. So I have an argument in the book, which I think a lot of liberal readers will find somewhat tough to read, which is that it is very hard to pinpoint what Mitch McConnell did wrong with Merrick Garland. He used powers he completely had constitutionally to not have a vote on someone he and his party did not want to be on the Supreme Court in what was without doubt the single most important it is the single most ideologically important vote anybody in the Senate would take that cycle, a swing seat on the Supreme Court with a lifetime appointment. And so he didn't invent a new power. He didn't get armed looters in the streets. He just said no. And he had the power to say no. And then his team won the next election. And that isn't to say what Mitch McConnell did was good, it's to say that in Perfectly straightforwardly following the incentives, rules, and power structure of American politics, he set up a precedent that could completely destroy the Supreme Court. It is very plausible we could have an extended period of Democratic presidencies and Republican Senates, given the geography of the system. And in that structure, I think the Supreme Court will just not be able to fill vacancies. There's nothing that ensures they can fill vacancies, and then you just don't, no longer have the highest court in the land being able to operate in a serious and, and credible fashion. Or in the reverse, you might have a situation where Democrats stop believing the rulings of the Supreme Court are credible. Like Imagine that what happens is you have a Democratic president— and you have a Republican Supreme Court, I'm sorry, a Republican Senate, and there are vacancies open, the Republicans don't let them fill. In that condition, if the Supreme Court keeps doing rulings against what the Democratic president wants to do, at what point do Democrats stop listening and say, okay, well, who's going to stop us? That is how in other systems, other countries, our particular political system
2: breaks down because uh, it creates the potential for irresolvable crisis. And a point you make to that that is that there are competing sources of legitimacy here, right? That presidents are elected by one electorate, congresses are elected by a different electorate. And in, in those kinds of conditions, it actually is not clear, like, really who ought to have the legitimacy barack obama could say well i just got elected re-elected in 2012 i got re-elected by you know 60 million people and you guys did not uh but mcconnell can say well in 2014 we had an election too and i got this right majority and it's compounded then by the fact that not only does the political system spread
1: power out but it warps opinion right so Right now, I always think it's important to really appreciate this. We call ourselves a democracy. When kids go to school, they learn we're a democracy. Right now, the White House is occupied by the candidate who won fewer votes than the runner-up. The Senate is occupied by the party that won fewer votes over the past three cycles. Because of that, the Supreme Court is occupied and controlled by a majority that is appointed by the party that won fewer votes in the relevant election. So three out of the four main power centers in American politics are occupied by the party that did not have a popular majority to implement their agenda. That's weird. Like that's a weird way to run a railroad. And then when you combine that with divided government, that's also another way you get the legitimacy crisis. Because in some ways, it's not just that Mitch McConnell can say, well, I was elected. It is true that in 2014, he had a much better claim to majority. Republicans did win that election quite substantially. But over time, he doesn't. There's not a lot of democratic, small-D democratic legitimacy in the Republican ruling class. It is reliant on people accepting the norms of American politics as credible. But if it continues to diverge will democrats standing from behind a larger and larger potentially popular vote majority continue accepting not being able to convert that into power maybe but also maybe not so you don't just have the divided government dimension of our system you also have the geographic warping dimension of our system which at this point is playing out very sharply in one party's favor
2: Um, and that just really i think compounds the internal stress of the structure i mean this gets to the thing I said at the very beginning of our conversation here, what makes the current polarization particularly bad is exactly the combination of stacked identity and partisan polarization and our kind of rickety old system means that we're sort of heading towards a legitimacy crisis, either now or later, later when, you know, a handful of uh, states can only send eight senators, despite representing 60% of the population, Mm -hmm. for just running into this massive uh, uh, crisis. Um, So your book doesn't have any solutions for this crisis. Um, (laughs) By design. That's not me insulting the book. It's just by design. Uh, But what, what kind of things, not can we do, but how can we think about things in ways that might help us deal with the crisis when it comes. Uh, I will say my book has
1: solutions. I just advise you not to take them seriously because they won't happen, which is a different thing. I could solve this as king, I just don't. Um, the argument I make in the book is that we, when people think about the, like the, the fundamental equation of American politics, under conditions of polarization, our system breaks down equals something. The place they normally go again because they baseline into the 20th century is well like let's turn back polarization and the simple truth there is it is possible that something will happen that will turn back polarization in the next 30 years that I can't predict, right? Maybe we'll go to war with China and the external enemy will unify Americans, right? Things like that do happen. But assuming nothing like that happens, and I hope we don't go to war with China, we're not going to put the polarization genie back in the bottle. We've not talked a lot about it, but the second half of the book is all about institutional feedback loops and how they worsen polarization, how you get into feedback loops with the media, with how elections are run, with how we're governed, and that they are making polarization a lot worse. So I think we should focus again in a world where we could on the other part of it the way the system works and the primary thing i say would help that i really do think would help but it would not bring down polarization it would just make the system governable is democratization i think that majorities of the country should be able to turn their popular vote majority into political power and then use that political power to govern and then I think the country should judge them on whether or not that governance was good or
2: bad. And when you say this, people are like, well, that's crazy. Hey, we're, we're, like a, de- you- we're a democracy, not a republic. <laughs> no, we're a republic,
1: not a democracy. That's
2: right. I got that wrong. I oh. hold it in such contempt that I couldn't get it right.
1: Yeah. And incidentally, we're not a republic in that way. It always annoys me because that sentence doesn't mean what people think it means. Though the specific way in which you are a republic is not like supposed to be that... We give one political party an outsized amount of popular vote power. Like The specific way in which a republic was different. It was about—it's just, it's just a weird argument people make. Anyway, I think we could democratize, and I think that would have a couple good effects. One is if popular vote majorities could actually wield political power, then you would have an incentive for both parties to compete for majorities. I think a very bad thing about the Republican Party right now, a very negative incentive structure, is that it has begun to see that— It wants to continue ruling through minority rule and it does not it sees democracy itself as a threat to Republican interests and that's very dangerous it leads to a lot of efforts at all levels of the Republican power structure to constrict the franchise to fight over who gets to vote and how much weight their vote holds you see that in gerrymandering which to be fair Democrats do too but Republicans do more and with more power and more aggressively you see that in Supreme Court decisions around public sector unions and campaign finance you see that in voter ID laws and so on. So the fight, making the fight over the rules of who gets to vote is, I think, a very damaging and dangerous thing for the country. So- I think it'd be better if the Republican Party were competing for the whole um, for the whole country for a 51% majority. But then, if either party won, I would like to see them be able to implement their agenda. And this is a problem on both sides of the political divide that people prefer the problems of inaction to the problems of action, the problems of paralysis to the problems of governance. You will hear Democratic senators say, "Yeah, look, it's not that I love the filibuster when we're in the majority, but we're often in the minority, and as such, the filibuster is really important for blocking things we don't like." I think that if you think your agenda is a good agenda and the other agenda is bad then you should be positive about getting rid of things like the filibuster and permitting uh, majorities to rule. I just don't think it is a coherent position to say healthcare is really important in people's lives and it would be meaningless to people's politics if Republicans kick 25 million people off of health insurance. I don't think it works that way. And so I think that the way a system should work is that the public should vote in a party to govern. That party should be able to pass its agenda. And then the party, then the public should be able to say, do I like what has happened to the country? Instead, what happens is the public votes in someone to govern. That person and that party does not pass its agenda. The public feels there's just been a lot of fighting, but nothing has changed. And then they kind of thermostatically swing back to the other side. And I just think that's a weird way to run a political system. If you implemented my agenda, I want to be very clear. We would not enter an era of politics with no argumentation, no bitter divisions, like unending peace and idyllic life and puppies and so on. It wouldn't be that good. It would just be governable. And I would prefer governable to ungovernable.
2: On that point, I think we're going to move over to questions. Um, So first, thank you. And um...
3: what structural changes do you think could help create a political culture where tribal epistemology plays a smaller role that's hard so
1: um the question asked about tribal epistemology which is actually a term that comes from my colleague dave roberts and it's functionally about the way the conservative side of the spectrum has cocooned itself in a much smaller group of media outlets that fundamentally see themselves as having movement incentives. So if you look at who do Democrats trust, their most trusted network is CNN. If you look at who do Republicans trust, it's Fox News. If you look at the range of outlets Democrats trust, they trust, actually Pew just did a study, 22 of 30 outlets that were named. Republicans trusted seven, and four of them were Breitbart, Rush Limbaugh, Fox News, and I think it was Hannity or something like that. So how do you get out of that? I don't know. (laughs) Tribal epistemology is hard um, because it's also about people's individual choices. The media has its own dynamics in all of this. And the argument I make in the book is that the media's dynamics also have a lot to do with a culture of a lot of choice, a lot of competition, but what has kept the left side of the divide rooted in more mainstream institutions that discipline some of its worst instincts and aspects is a really interesting sociological question. Um, how you would rebuild that is much harder. I actually don't like giving, ans- giving kind of fake answers to questions I don't know how to solve. So I'm going to say tribal epistemology is bad, but I don't think that there is a I don't think there is a thing you can pass or some kind of policy you can do that would end it. Um, I think you actually the best I can say for it is that the way to make good information matter is to make good governance possible and matter. And then if you are governing based on bad information, I think people would be able to see it and react. Um, but to the extent that you have tribal epistemology plus paralyzed governance, it becomes very hard for people to see the outcomes of that and assign blame clearly. And so you end up in our system. So I guess I will say now more than ever, the thing I said before is a stuff we should do. (laughs) All right. So uh, you talked about the difference, how uh, our identities are stacking more instead of cross-cutting than they used to be. Um, But then something you've talked about in your podcast a lot is the big difference between engaged voters and
3: non-engaged voters. So I'm wondering, how is this affecting the country so vastly when... I think you've talked about most voters are not engaged; they're not paying attention
1: to everything that's going on. It's a great question and two answers to it. One is that it is actually polarizing in a soft way disengaged voters. So there's a great study I talk about a fair amount in the book by a political scientist named Corwin Schmidt, and he has a couple great findings in there. But the study is called "The Decline of the fo- of the Floating Voter." What he shows is there are many fewer persuadable voters, and then he shows inside that what in, so crazy <laughs> that low information voters today say they have a much clearer understanding of the differences between the two parties than high information voters did in the 70s. And the reason for that is not that low information voters suddenly have more information than high information voters, it's that the difference between the two parties is clearer. It is incredibly clear. The line I have in the book is it's easier to tell the difference between a donkey and an elephant than a donkey and a mule. So if you go back into these other periods, you see parties that are actually quite similar. 1976, a Republican Party convention platform has a plank on abortion, and it says our party is divided on abortion. There are people inside of it who think we should have abortion on demand and those who think abortion should be illegal in all circumstances, and we respect that difference of opinion. In 1996, if you go back and read the Democratic Party platform, Bill Clinton's immigration platform sounds like Donald Trump today. It does not sound like the Democratic Party. So it was a lot harder for disengaged voters to tell the difference between the parties because the parties actually were not as different. So one is that the clearer the choice becomes, the more polarized even disengaged voters become because it's just clear to see which side you should ultimately be on. But the other thing I'll say about it Is it this is a place political scientists argue endlessly over are only elites polarizing or is the mass polarizing? But the reason these things matter is that elites are the ones most cocooned in these hyper polarized media spaces. It's like a good example of this is that the reason we are having an impeachment trial today is Donald Trump, the president, watches a lot of Fox News, and Fox News spent a lot of time promoting this weird Peter Schweitzer conspiracy theory about Biden and Hunter Biden and Burisma and Ukraine. And Trump or some people around Trump, like Giuliani, got so invested in this thing that was barbling up in the right-wing swamps that they invested the power of the uh, executive branch in investigating it, and the downstream consequence is an incredibly polarizing impeachment trial that we are all now living through and having to respond to. So political elites create the system that everybody else has to respond to. If they are in these hyperpolarized spaces and creating a hyperpolarized system in reaction to it, well, then everybody else simply has to live in the wreckage of what they've constructed.
2: Do you see a problem with the tyranny of the majority?
1: I do. Um, I don't think we should have a system without minority protections. Um, We should have constitutional protections. We should have um, also, I believe, procedural protections. I don't think we should have a filibuster that is this invincible 60-vote blockade on anything. But do I think it should be easier for minorities to bring bills to the floor and they should be guaranteed a certain amount of debate? Absolutely. I don't think majority rule in politics is necessarily a tyranny of the majority. There's a lot of other things we do in countries that are not understood as having a tyranny of the majority, like Canada or Britain, separate from making politics impossible for a majority to actually govern. So in my view, you should have minority protections. You should have them both politically and beyond politically. There are things that should be embedded in the fabric of rights in the country and in the fabric of how the political conflict is structured. But I think it has been a like a somewhat opportunistic move that simply running the system like other systems is run is equated to tyranny of the majority. I think that it would just be governing by majority and you can do that without having tyranny.
0: Good evening. I'm hoping that you can discuss in the context of your solution America's historic failure to deal with the Negro problem. So where we know that people vote against their own best interest when it comes to identity, specifically race So I think
1: there are a couple things here, and this is always a trickier territory, but one thing I want to key in on there is that there's a line on the left that people vote against their interests, but I think it narrows the way people understand their interests. People understand their interests very much in terms of is their group going to become and remain dominant they understand their interests very expressively and i think it ends up making problems for the left when they think people's interests boil down to too much about resources because then people don't really vote on that basis and the left is sort of surprised so i think that in terms of getting these larger cross-party coalitions and cross-class coalitions and cross-racial coalitions we need to sort of start with a sense of interest that is much larger. One of the things I'm trying to do in this book is give a more rigorous account of how identity influences politics so that people acting in politics can build more inclusive identities. One of the things that I think tends to really narrow politics and confuse people is that identity politics is understood as something only marginalized groups do. identities are understood as something only marginalized groups have. And so then there's this kind of constant tussle between what is understood as identity politics and then voting, you know, trying to get people to vote in material self-interest. If you want people to vote on class-based politics instead, you have to do a much better job building an identity around class people have to understand class as something deeper than just sort of like what is happening in healthcare policy. And so you're going to have to build things that are much more built around group identities. And you see this a bit happening in the rising left, right? Part of putting a rose next to your Twitter account, it is an identity signal to the world. It is a way of collecting yourself into a group. And so to the extent that left has expected just a politics of more resource redistribution to carry them through, I think one of the reasons it hasn't is it's been based on a kind of ig- like an ignoring of how much people vote expressively to vote their identity and how much people understand their identity as their group is rising in status versus falling in status.
0: All right. So first off, so happy to be here. You're one of my biggest celebrity crushes. So this is awesome. That's, and, uh,
1: <laughs> have, have you ever seen an actual celebrity? <laughs> actual celebrities I've so seeing one right now and now I actually do have a
0: question moderator don't worry okay so <laughs> recently <laughs>
2: I, I'm listening
0: <laughs> okay so recently the headlines have been dominated with action taken or not taken by Google Facebook Twitter on political ads and so I'm curious from your perspective how do you view micro targeting and for political ads and other technological advances as a method of accelerating polarization
1: I'm really caught on this one I don't believe it works. I do not believe Cambridge Analytica had any influence whatsoever on the election. I don't in general believe Russian troll and bot networks had a big influence on the election. I do think the Russian hacking of the DNC had an influence on the election, but I'm not at all convinced that the social media operations, which were very real, influenced the election. It was such a tiny drop in the bucket of what people were seeing, as is most of the micro targeting stuff, that I just, I don't know. Um... I can't tell you for sure that micro-targeting isn't part of it. Certainly, it allows us to be more specific and it does cut people into identity groups. Most of the political science research on advertising says that it matters a little and it decays super fast. So what will happen is, even if you really nail people with advertisements that do move them, like three weeks later, they've completely forgotten it. And there's a lot of cross-pressuring. Sort of everything I've been saying before now in in this discussion suggests to me that it's very hard to move people's identities around. So at best, what you're doing is reinforcing what they already have, which I do think is happening. The other thing I'll say is there's a lot of research now on who is polarized, both here and internationally. And the people who are the most polarized tend to actually be older voters who are the least exposed to online micro-targeting campaigns. It is entirely plausible to me that as micro-targeting gets better, as online advertising gets better, that it will develop a Skinner Box-like capability to really influence our actions. But have you ever seen online advertising? Obviously, all advertising the Box runs is beautiful and super high quality, and it's great. But if you're anywhere else, anywhere else on the internet, it's like, I see you recently bought a bike. Would you like to buy another bike? Like, just Forever. Like, I bought a bike at one point, and just like for three months, it was like, you want a bike? So I am just not convinced it's so good. Most ads don't matter. Internet ads seem pretty bad. And I think we're often believing bullshit people are saying about their psychographic targeting techniques. I don't know, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't have a high confidence in that opinion. So what do you think the most important thing that nonpartisan individuals can do to cope with and potentially make an impact in a polarized world? I think it would be genuinely weird. I can't put myself actually in the position of not having a view on who would be right in the current collision. Um, and I don't mean that in a, like a dismissive way. I just... I write in this chapter I have about the media that the more fundamental divide is not left, right, it's interested, uninterested. I think it's actually reasonably easy for people on the left and right to mentally model each other. It's like very easy for me to run like a Yuval Levin simulation in my mind. Um, And it's much harder for me to imagine looking at this and saying, I just don't know. And so that said, I guess I probably do have a real answer to this, um, which is that There's an argument, this actually comes from that same Corwin Schmidt paper, that floating voters were super important to accountability in the political system because they were willing to change their mind, primarily based on economic and whether we're in a war characteristics of the system. And so at the very least, they created an incentive to govern the economy reasonably well in the short term. It wasn't a perfect incentive because it's often not a politician's fault if a recession hits right when they're in office. It's usually not like the president accidentally hit the red recession button in the Oval Office. But nevertheless, it did impose something that was not just partisanship. So having people who are less attached to the political system who are voting more on these, on what they're seeing around them is important. There's actually another interesting study now that this is jogging my memory a bit, um, it relates to, to one of the previous questioners, which says that people who are not that engaged or interested in politics, they tend to vote on the question of what will this person's policies do for me to the extent, obviously, that I um, know them um, versus as people get more invested in politics, they vote on identity expression. It's what do, these, what do these policies and ideas say about me? So one of the good things about voters who are not that committed to any side and don't have super strong opinions is that they tend to vote in a different way than highly engaged voters, which make them a cross-cutting group. And we could just use more cross-cutting groups. The final thing I'll say is one of the major recommendations of the book, the recommendation that I think everybody can do, and it's a recommendation somewhat against interest for me as a national political journalist, is we have way too deeply indexed on national political identities and information and state and local political identities have atrophied. And I have a lot of evidence about this in the book, but I really urge people, whether you're super highly engaged or not, to get more, to move your political information consumption and your political action and activism somewhat more towards state and local issues. One that's cross-cutting, what is needed in San Francisco or Boise or Des Moines or New York or um, name your city is just different than what the national parties are arguing over. They have different cleavages and different needs, but also having that different set of information, it's more nourishing. Being actually involved in your community is a lot less frustrating than being on Twitter, tweeting things at Donald Trump or tweeting things at me. Um, don't tweet things at me. Uh, I won't see it. <laughs> um, and so getting involved at a state and local level, as opposed to at the national level, I think is good, for, is good for everybody, even if you're super highly engaged.
3: Hi. So my question is about your article over the weekend in the Times um, that I sort of interpreted as being primarily about uh, Republican geographic advantage that boils down to the fact that the median of medians is not a median, right? So why shouldn't Democrats, like elected Democrats, campaign for a system, like campaign against the legitimacy of a system that entrenches the median of medians rather than? a system that entrenches the median.
1: Well, I think they should campaign against it.
3: Well, a bit like To the point that they say the Senate is illegit- illegitimate because the Senate is not a median voter institution. The House is illegitimate because it's not a median voter institution. The things that are legitimate would be like multi-member proportional or proportional representation. And until, until we get those, everything else is illegitimate. Because like, I
1: think that? that burning down the system is not likely to help the people that Democrats need to help. Um, politics is simultaneously a finite and an infinite game. On the one hand, like we're, the two sides are colliding for advantage in the here and now. The stakes really are life and death. They're really high. Like It is not the case that you can only think about politics in terms of preserving what we've gotten. But nevertheless, like the fact that we do have this history of constitutional continuity more or less, I mean, Jamel was saying earlier, it's been worse before and it really has. Like Civil wars have happened here. They happen in other countries. I think taking for granted, particularly right now when we see how far the system can begin to stretch and the sort of people can take power in it, taking for granted that there is some power in the fact that we have a system people more or less trust and want to see continuity in is very real. Something I urge people to do, and it's part of the quasi-hopeful ending of the book, is distinguish between levels and trends in American life. The trend in American politics right now is bad. Like, I think it's bad. We have at other times been going up in terms of our search for justice and equality and representativeness and so on. And right now we are going down. But levels wise, there are not many times in American history you would prefer to be in, even just from a political system perspective. We were not more democratic 30 years ago or 50 years ago or much less 100 years ago. So saying that right now it has turned against Democrats, so they should torch it, I think is throwing too much out in a bid for short-term advantage um, and also assuming too much that we know where things are going for here. I mean, I think a very plausible way all this shakes out when people are looking back at why my book is ridiculous and wrong in 20 years is that we were just in a demographic interennium and pretty quickly Texas became blue and like kind of that was that and things became more governable because you had more of a majority capable of governing. The electoral college tilt went down, et cetera. So, I'm not telling you that will happen. I don't have that crystal ball, but I don't think we're at a, I think the consequences of trying to tear down a system are quite dire, and I don't think we're at a point where it's time to do that.
3: Hello.
2: Um, so one thing you wrote several years ago, I think actually oh, no. you and Matt had a debate about whether or not um, like d- this democracy would break or whether we were muddling through, and it seems like we're muddling through very poorly at the moment. Um, But along with that, I'm kind of wondering if you, one, if you still feel we're muddling through or if democracy is breaking. And two, like, what would it take? Because I'm trying to think, like, this structural reform that I agree with you about what we need, what would it take to, like, get the parties or whatever to even think about doing something like that? Because it feels so far off in the distance. So, like, how do we know if our democracy is broken and how it, what would actually happen in order for to get them to do something about it?
1: So I do think we are still muddling through. Even with Donald Trump in office, as bad as he is, he actually has not become the strong man that a lot of liberal or liberal commentary feared right at the beginning. In part, I think we have seen that he definitely could if he had more of a ten- an attention span. So that's very scary, but he does not have more of an attention span. And so he kind of flits from thing to thing. So we are currently muddling. Muddling is not pretty. It's not fun. I don't recommend it. I'd like to actually fix problems. Um, to what you're saying, I don't think the parties will do it. I do think there is some chance that at some point Democrats get fed up enough, um, a little bit to the last questioner's point, where they don't campaign against the legitimacy of the system, but they take its illegitimacy actually seriously enough to do something about it. And what that would mean in my mind is that Democrats get power. they It's totally plausible they could win the House, Senate, and White House even in 2020, Um, And then the first thing they do, as opposed to like getting into a land war in Asia over some bill they can't pass, is like they eliminate the filibuster in the Senate and then pass a series of completely value-based legitimate laws to make the system work better. D.C. and Puerto Rico should have Democratic representation because.
2: Just totally pandering. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Thank you for the easy clap there. Um, DC and Puerto Rico should have representation because they should. But what's even crazier about that situation is that that's actually a passable law. And I think to a large extent, Democrats do not prioritize it because it feels to them like it would be a power grab if the people of DC and Puerto Rico chose to elect Democrats elect using their franchise. It's such a crazy situation. I don't even know what to say about it. Um you could do a lot on gerrymandering, just passing things through the House and Senate. You could do a lot on campaign finance reform, just passing things through the House and Senate. You could, as I mentioned, get rid of the filibuster. You couldn't upend the entire system. But to one of the, what the earlier questioners was saying, one reason I don't worry about tyranny of the majority is we're not going to get to a majority. What we could get is a little bit less towards tyranny of the minority. And that would just mean Democrats coming into power and saying, Actually, we think these things are the right thing to do. And there's been some little pieces of it. Democrats a little bit weakened the filibuster, and I think it was 2015. Republicans end the blue slip rule, and then Democrats weirdly reinstated it, and then Republicans got rid of it again. These things do go back and forth. I mean, in a lot of the period we're talking about in the 60s, up until 75, it took a two thirds majority of the Senate to end the filibuster, not a 60 vote majority. So things can change if political parties want to change them, but they have to prioritize them, right? there's a huge, this is like my hobby horse, but there's a very big difference between a party that comes into power in 2021 is like, all right, like we're going to try to pass Medicare for all without doing anything about the filibuster or anything. And then they're just going to lose versus a party that comes in and says, we are going to try to make things governable before we govern. And then we're going to try to govern and then let people judge us on the basis of that governing. Like, you could do that. You can, that's basically what Merrick, the Mitch McConnell, Merrick Garland play was. Do something that the other side might see as illegitimate, but trust that your side will see it as legitimate, and that in the end, people will prefer the outcome. Um, Democrats could do it in a direction that would be healthy for the system, and in my view, um, speaking as a nonpartisan political analyst, they should. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Hi. Uh- so, I'm curious about your reaction to how much of our current situation is a question of our structure versus our demographics, the US being fairly unique demographically throughout history. Uh, if you took the exact same uh, America, but the founders created a parliamentary system, and then that lasted for 250 years, but the demographics were exactly the same, the same sort of racial backlash we're seeing today, how different would that be?
1: So, here's the way I think about this. So, one, I want to say I don't know exactly. For sure i don't know but imagine that like rerun the 2016 election hillary clinton is a democratic nominee donald trump surprisingly is a republican nominee um, and then they fight it out and it's pretty clear hillary clinton is a reasonably weak candidate um, she did a couple like i don't know if you've heard but her email security was extremely lax um and we wouldn't allow anybody like that near the presidency But even so, she manages to pull it out by winning the popular vote by 3 million votes. So she wins. And it was clear that she could have been beaten. And so now inside the Republican Party, there's like a civil war because Republicans could have elected or nominated Marco Rubio or John Kasich, maybe even Jeb Bush, maybe even Ted Cruz and won. I mean, you could see that in the head-to-head polling the whole time, but instead they elected this lunatic and lost. And so the Trumpist faction in the Republican Party becomes increasingly discredited. And there's a sense that to ever win power again, instead of letting Hillary Clinton fill seats on the Supreme Court, you have to moderate a bit. I think in that world, the Republican Party would have moderated a bit. And so one of my arguments for democratization is I think that exposure to the demographics of the era is a healthy disciplining force for campaigns and for political parties. Having to deal with the country as it is, not as your coalition would like it to be, is good because then you have to change your message to win over those people. Um, so I can't say for sure what would be true if we were a parliamentary system. I definitely don't think it would erase all political conflict. Like I want to say there's not a version of politics that everybody's going to like. Like Look internationally. It's not like the UK looks great right now. Canada's having its problems. But the specific ungovernable toxicity of our system and the legitimacy questions and so on, those don't have to be here and I think we would be in a healthier place if they weren't. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you to Jamel. Thank you Jamel Bowie, uh, for doing that. Thank you to all of you for being here, for being there. It's so cool to meet so many of you in person. Please buy the book. Go leave reviews on Amazon. That is how people see books now. So go do it if you have a sec. Um, Thank you to Jeff Geld for producing, to Risha Karma for researching. And as always, the Ezra Klein Show is Vox Media Podcast Production. And my email is at ezraklineshowatvox.com.